It's a joy to be back together again in this continuing study, and it's been a blessing this last couple weeks uh, to me, as it has been, I'm sure, to you, where we were able to hear from some of the other men who serve as leaders and teachers here at Berean. They taught about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus and on the family of God, and it was just a big blessing for me. I'd like to get back to our Second Corinthians section as we begin to wrap up our extended study, verse by verse, through both of these letters. Look at verse 7, if you would, of chapter 13. We'll read all the way through verse 14. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. Verse 8, for we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice, verse 9, when we ourselves are weak, but you're strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. Verse 10, reason. I'm writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Verse 11, finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. Verse 13, all the saints greet you, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Writing recommendations can be hazardous. Tell the truth and you might get sued if the contents are negative. Robert Thornton, a former professor at Lehigh University, had a collection of, he called, quote, virtually litigation-proof phrases called the Lexicon of Intentionally Ambiguous Recommendations, or LIAR for short. Here are some of his examples. To describe an inept person, quote, I enthusiastically recommend this candidate with no qualifications whatsoever. To describe an ex-employee who had problems getting along with fellow workers, quote, I'm pleased to say that this candidate is a former colleague of mine. To describe an unproductive candidate, quote, I can assure you that no person would be better for the job. To describe an applicant not worth consideration, I would urge you to waste no time in making this candidate an offer of employment, end quote. Last time we were together, we stopped at verse 7, uh, noting that these last few passages in Paul's letter are just packed full of examples and marks of faithful ministry, which has really been our focus as Paul pens the last few paragraphs before his impending visit. And they've been some of the most powerful and, and perspective changing of the letter. And I want to just take a few moments to have a quick review. It's been three weeks since we've been in our study. Look at verse 7, if you would, as we kind of refresh where we've been and what the Lord would have to teach us from here. Paul says in verse 7, he says, Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. And this sentence reminds us that Paul is not concerned about, as we just mentioned, letters of recommendation. He isn't concerned about whether somebody writes him something that makes him look good. He isn't concerned about padding his bio. He starts with a statement, now we pray to God that you do no wrong. Paul knows, as we've noted, that he can't do anything within his own flesh to guarantee an eternal outcome, just like no minister can do anything inside their own flesh not just to guarantee an eternal outcome, but even a favorable one. You can't even guarantee that in your own flesh. So he desires to speak Christ to them through his word. And we saw that he knows from verse 4 that he's weak in himself. Remember he said that Christ was crucified in weakness. And we also are, what he say, weak in him. 
Paul recognizes that he's weak. They say, you're just weak, Paul. I agree. You would agree. And, and so it's not surprising that Paul prays for them. An obvious example we saw from, that was number 15 of our examples of a faithful minister, and that's to bring those he ministers to before the Lord in prayer. And of course, this seems to be a desperate situation, and Paul's perspective has a lot of things hang in the balance. And we've looked at numerous examples of Paul's prayer for those in his care. In fact, you can barely read any of the epistles from Paul, and right away you see him praying for the church. And some of those prayers are prophylactic in nature, you know, that they'll grow, that they'll grow in grace and knowledge, they'll understand their position in Christ, all those things which will help them as they deal with life's issues and, and deal in, God, in a godly manner. And then we see some of these that are just kind of dominating the situation with a desperate prayer and a cloud, if you will, hanging over his visit, an unwelcome, as we said at the beginning of our, our series, business meeting that he's not looking forward to where people may be unpleasant. So again, he affirms that he trusts the outcome to God. And he prays that they will, he says, do no wrong. Eris, active infinitive, continuing prayer that they avoid wrongdoing. And we saw that that's the Greek word for bad morally, bad by way of thinking, bad feeling, bad acting. My prayer, he says for you, is that you continue to live a life that is absent of wrongdoing, absent of evil, absent of bad things. And that gave us that next example from Paul of a faithful minister, and that he is always concerned about the obedience of the church. So as he teaches, he wants to make sure that they obey, and his prayer is that they will submit to the Lord's instruction. And we saw from chapter 12 and verse 21 that he mourned over those who were disobedient, and we saw in verse 19 that we saw he was always concerned for their upbuilding, and living according to the truth is not subjective. Praying that they do no wrong, but do what's right, isn't relative right. And I say that because George Barna, and you may be familiar with his name, a great American pollster, has a number of books out documenting what Robert Bella, a former professor of sociology at Berkeley, acknowledged in his book, Habits of the Heart. In that research, Bella, uh, which is from a number of years ago, he shed light on this paradox of what he called spirituality and morality in the society and in the church. And he found in his sampling that 81% of the American people said that they agree that an individual should arrive at his or her own religious belief independent of what the church says. 81%. And you may find, as I said that, that perhaps you may agree with that. You may fall into that 81%. And thus the key to the paradox, he says, is the fact that those who claim to be Christians are arriving at faith on their own terms, terms that make no demands on behavior. We see this often. People who call themselves believers, but they live like the world, but they would say that their faith is important to them. And during his research, he made a woman named Sheila relatively famous. In his interview with her, uh, she said, quote, I believe in God, although I don't go to church often. My faith has carried me a long ways then she said this, it's Sheilaism, just my own little voice, end quote. That's pretty common. That's not an unusual thing to bump into. People will say, my faith is very important, although they don't find themselves in church often or hardly at all, and, and then violate then very, a number of specific uh, scriptures that say that you are to be in part of the fellowship and regularly in part of the fellowship. And numerous Barna studies confirm um, this Sheilaism, numbers among those who would consider themselves born again. And the way Barna works it is he'll say agree or disagree 
you are born again. And if they say, yes, we're born again, then they get a different series of questions than they would get if they said, no, we would not understand what born again meant. And many of the main denominations would not understand that word or wouldn't be able to describe themselves as born again. And so it's, it's an easy way for him to determine the differences between groups. And so he's, he, uh, he had studies with those who consider themselves born again. They would answer, yes, I'm born again. Among adults, 32% of those who were considered, who considered themselves born again said they believe in moral absolutes, compared with just half as many, 15%, among the non-born-again contingent. Let's think about that for a second. So these are people who would say they're born again. Only 32% of those people would say that there are any moral absolutes. And this will really shock you, and this is, this is very recent. Among teenagers, only 9% of born-again teenagers believe in moral absolutes versus 4% of non-born-again teens. Is that shocking to you? It's not shocking if you're working with teens. It's not shocking if you're working with teens who say that they're believers. But this is what we have. Even among adults who would categorize themselves as born again, 32% of those who are born again said they believe in moral absolutes. Only 32%. It's, in, it's insane. So it's in Paul's time with the Corinthian church, there were many who had accepted, remember, 2 Corinthians 11, 4, another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel, and they'd heard those things from, verse 13, false apostles and deceitful workers and disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And Paul says, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds." So they were deceived by the message of the world, which is Satan's temporary domain, and it's just like that today, being concerned with objective, absolute truth is still just as important for the faithful minister. So why do we have the numbers we have? We have the numbers we have, beloved, because there's not that many people doing that. There's a lot of people who are teaching topically. There's a lot of people who'd like to go through something that'll capture your attention. And if you go to seminary, they want to teach you that way. Start with something that's going to grab everybody's attention and then go and launch into that topically, whatever you need to talk about. And, and then people walk out and they say, well, that's, a really, that's his opinion and I'm glad he has it, but I don't share it. And they'd be right to say that's his opinion because very little happened that came from objective truth from the Word of God. And much was the opinion. And, and I've run into people, though, that I've actually quoted a scripture to and said, um, this, this applies to your situation. And they say, that's your opinion. That's like the standard answer. And I would say, no, actually, it's not my opinion. That's really what the Word of God says. And if I didn't exist, it would still say that. See, So it's not my opinion. But people are coming out with just opinions of people who are supposedly supposed to be teaching them the Word of God and are failing miserably. And then what we end up having is... Many people consider themselves born again and think they can define their own truth and they can define their own church and what the church is supposed to look like and what Christianity is supposed to look like and their faith is very important to them. It's taken a long ways, except it doesn't have any impact on morality. And this is that, this is that paradox that, uh, that uh, Robert Bella discovered. It's not, it's not hidden. We see it all the time. And so these are the concerns Paul brings to the Lord. It kind of dominates his prayer life because this is pretty serious. And there are obviously things that still need to be a concern of the faithful minister to be praying about. To declare the word of Christ, to do it faithfully, to exhort and rebuke and correct and instruct and constantly bring these things to the Lord. And the situation at Corinth is really fraught with problems. And it's, so it's coloring everything he prays. So he asked the Lord that they would continue in a pattern, not of wrongdoing, but of doing what's right. And again, uh, that's a great example from Paul. Now let's look at the next point. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but you may do what's right, 
even though we may appear unapproved. And that may do what is right, present active subjective. We saw that before. There's some contingency involved here. He's unsure what the future will be. There's no small amount of doubt that they're going to do what they should do. Just like, just like we saw today, many people think they're doing right and there aren't. And, and many people don't know what's right. So we see that often in, in, uh, in social media, don't we? People say, oh, the Lord's really blessed me today. I'm just you know, really glad for the Lord's blessing on my life. And you know this person, and you know they don't live like a, a believer. They don't, their life doesn't model being a believer at all. And yet they would say something like that. On, and it would just tell you they have no idea what they're supposed to believe. And, and they don't know what's right. And, and, they, and they're not doing it. And, but they think somehow the Lord's blessing them. Where the reality is, because they're not even born again, they're just having a good day. And the Lord's not involved in that at all, other than just general revelation where he gives his blessing to people, whether they love him or not. And so, it's, I think it's important we see this a lot. And, and they would say, you know, if they were truly born again, they would be talking about the chastening perhaps the Lord would be bringing on them. And so, this is very common, and we see this. So, it's, it's just as, just as uh, relevant today as it was during Paul's time. And so Paul says, I'm, I'm going to pray that you won't do what's wrong, but you'll do what's right. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but you may do what's right, even though we may appear unapproved. Paul prays for a change so that we'll avoid wrongdoing and understand what they should do in order to be pleasing to the Lord, and that again consumes his efforts. But I think here is one of the most genuine statements of all these examples from Paul, which refers back to our opening illustration. Make a continued habit of avoiding the bad and change to do what's right, but he says, not that we ourselves may appear appear approved. He doesn't care he doesn't care if he gets a great recommendation. He doesn't care um, if his reputation is enhanced. He's not worried about building his kingdom. He isn't looking for recognition when the church walks in the spirit. He doesn't care if people think he really knows what he's doing. And as I told first service, you know, early in my ministry, I I actually prayed this. Perhaps you've prayed it too. I actually prayed, Lord, help the church flourish so people will know that I know what I'm doing. Until I came many years ago to this passage, started wrestling through it. I'm like, I'm praying all wrong here. This is not about me at all. But maybe you've, you've had that, and I pick on our coaches because we have so many good ones who are here. You know, don't you do that when you first start coaching? You know, don't you say, Lord, help our team to have a winning season so people will know that I know what I'm doing? Right? I mean, that's common, isn't it? I mean, I coached varsity basketball for years. I always want my team to have, you know, a good... Uh, uh, a positive record. Why? So they know that I know what I'm doing, that I'm getting the horsepower out of the guys I know I should get horsepower of, that I'm helping everybody play at a higher level than they would have normally played, right? So people know that I know what I'm doing, let's have a winning record. So it's common, isn't it, to, to want that. But Paul says, not that we ourselves may appear approved. I want you to do what's right, but not so people will think I know what I'm doing. And not only that, even though we may appear, What? unapproved. Here's what he's saying in essence. As important as his reputation was to his ministry and as necessary as it seemed to convince people to have confidence in his leadership because, you know, you had false teachers there and, and he was a true apostle and they weren't, so it's, it's kind of important. And as essential as it would appear that people trust him and believe that what he said came from God, that he spoke Christ to them because he actually used the word of God and didn't just come up and say, Jesus told me to tell you this, mark this, he would set those things aside as long as they responded in obedience. And that was really Paul's next, next example, and perhaps the most powerful one in this section that we've been in. 
of a faithful minister. He was chiefly and largely unconcerned about whether he was affirmed and mainly concerned about a Christ-like outcome. And that they would not do what's wrong, but they would do what's right, regardless of how they revered him or lack of revere. And we pointed out, no one, no one wants to be unfairly maligned. And nobody enjoys that. You know, most people would like to be appreciated and liked. Most would be, they'd like to be affirmed in their chosen field. And so we asked this question, I ask it again to you if you missed, would you take the maligning and give up being liked and appreciated and affirmed to make sure those under your care did what was right? Would you be okay with that? As long as they did what was right and they were successful, would you be okay with giving it up? Because that's really what Paul's saying, and that's really ultimate humility, isn't it? You've dealt yourself out of the equation, and they do what's right, you get no credit for it. In fact, not that you don't get any credit for it, they actually think you don't know what you're doing. That was what Paul was okay with. And obviously, Paul was concerned that the church know he was a real apostle, and he was concerned that they knew that he spoke Christ to them. But we see now, not that they would affirm him, but so that they would obey, and that they would flourish spiritually. That's why. And if that meant that he had to go on appearing to be disqualified in the eyes of the false apostles and the false teachers and, and part of the church that had been taken captive by them, then that was okay with Paul. As long as they were obedient, the other parts didn't matter at all. And that's just so humbling, isn't it? And so stunning to hear that. Paul says, I'd rather pray to God that you do no wrong, and I don't need to pad my resume, and I don't need a letter of introduction with my bio so that you'll give me the honor I deserve. Now look at verse 8. He says this, and this goes right along with, with it, it, you can see just how connected it is. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. And he uses that word truth, aletheia, twice. It is the word throughout the New Testament used to refer to the revelation of God that Jesus brings or used to refer to Jesus himself for what he actually is as the revelation of God. So that truth is used in both of those places pretty often. Illustration for you in John chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus is saying to those Jews who had believed, uh, who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know, here it is, our word, the truth, and the truth will make you free. And so when Paul says, you know, for we can do nothing against the truth but only for the truth, that statement really appears to come off the previous verse where he shows a true desire for the church to do what's right, regardless of how he's viewed. So in other words, as he comes to the church, he just affirms, mark it, that his conduct is going to remain guided by what the scriptures say and not conformed in order for them to be happy with it. And that's our next mark of a faithful ministry. Number 18, if you're keeping track from those gleaned from Paul's letter to the church, his attitude is so clear. The faithful minister isn't going to chase unbiblical means to try to manipulate those under his care. He's not going to chase unbiblical means to try to manipulate those under his care. Like the false teachers who were there in his time, who taught a different Jesus and a different spirit and a different gospel to get a response and get some followers and made, be made to look like they knew something. And like the false teachers today who will justify just about any approach and use any kind of language and any kind of worldly prompts to get a response from people. We see this over and over again. To manipulate to see something happen. Paul says, no matter what they may think or what they may want changed, I'm not going to violate my conscience concerning my understanding of the revealed Word of God. I'm just going to come and do just exactly what I've been doing. And secondarily, I think as we think about that, certainly connected to that understanding, it might be also, you know, 
implying if, if they've come around to repentance and have begun to walk in the truth, he won't have to do anything. I think both things are true. He won't change any way that he's approaching it. He's going to come with exactly the same heart attitude and convincing and convinced that what he's teaching is the Word of God. And secondly, if he comes and they've repented, he doesn't have to bring discipline. He doesn't have to bring discomfort to the church because if they're walking in the truth, he won't do anything against the truth. See, he's not on a power trip. If they change their behavior, he's all for that. Not going to do anything against the truth, only for the truth. Now, obviously, then verse 9 is also connected to verse 7. Very similar attitude. He says, because we saw, even if we appear unapproved, look at verse 9. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak and you're strong. Again, just this wonderful heart of Paul. He had learned that in weakness he became strong. Back in chapter 12, verse 9, he said, I boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Then at the end of verse 10, it says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And he learned that when he set his pride aside and he became humble and he accepted weakness, he had a disdain for his human abilities. Then he became an instrument of great power in the hands of God. Remember, um, Paul, as we looked at that part, Paul understood that the Lord had given, had given a demon to torment him, and the Lord had asked him to be taken away, and, and the Lord said, no, it's, it's there for your good to keep your pride in check, and Paul understood that. And so he knew he didn't need to gain some strength, some human reputation. He didn't need to th- uh, people to think that he was really something. And so he's happy to say, we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you're strong. We rejoice even if... If we approve, appear unapproved and you are doing what's right, we rejoice. I'm happy to appear weak to the world if you're strong. See, And the fact is, if they were strong, they have come to this same realization. It's not a different kind of strength, is it? The effective strength in doing the work of the ministry is always found in weakness and the Lord performing it through you. And their strength would again be a verification of Paul's true apostleship because he taught them the truth that made them strong. They understood this from Paul. And this first part really just echoes the dedication we've seen already. And though it's kind of a repeat mark, and I understand that uh, from these two chapters where we've gleaned so much from Paul, it's still important to, I think, um, illustrate it. The faithful minister is always committed to the building up of the church regardless of how he appears to them or anyone else. The fear of man, I, I tell new preachers all the time, when they get ready to preach their first sermon, the fear of man brings a snare. It's a passage out of Proverbs that I had to understand early in my life. What's that mean? It just means that as long as you walk up here and you're worried about whether people like you or like what you have to say or appreciate it or pat you on the back or not think badly of you the other way, not think that you're, you have no idea what you're doing, fear of man brings a snare. As long as you're worried about what they're thinking, you're not going to be doing what the Lord wants you to do. And I think this is the same way. Um, you know, a faithful minister is always committed to the building up of the church, regardless of how he appears to them or anybody else. And you can only do for the truth, not against the truth. You don't care if people think you're weak. It's perfectly fine. If you're flourishing and, and they're not approved. And you've got to get to, you got to wrestle your way through all of that. And it's constantly rearing its head. Everybody wants to be approved. Everybody wants to be like. Everybody wants to have somebody think they really know what they're doing. And you've got to push that down constantly. It's that human desire to be affirmed. But as long as you're worried about that, there's a huge problem. And you can't conform to the kind of minister the Lord wants you to be. Now look at the second part of this verse. It's just as wonderful as the first part. He says this. He says, um, we rejoice when we ourselves are weak and you're strong. And then he says, this we also pray for. So again, we get a cue on what to pray for. He says, um, that you be made complete. Katartison, it's a great Greek noun. And again, we see Paul praying 
for the church. We get to see the topic. Here he's not saying, I pray that you do no wrong, but you do right. He's saying, I pray for your completeness. And that becomes a model, again, for, for us. It's why it's here. It's to make someone completely adequate, that's the idea, or sufficient for something, to furnish something completely. We saw it in Romans, if you remember. It is the um, equipping of a ship after a journey for another journey. It's getting, uh, that, that word was used for that. Fully qualified, adequate, and, and again, it has to do with a restoration too. After a long journey, a ship has a number of things that have to be fixed, and so the idea is there. A few passages can illustrate this word for us and give us a sense of Paul's prayer for them as it's a model, it's important. As you, as you lead people, um, 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, it says, all Scripture is inspired by God, so it's God-breathed, that's what inspired means, God-breathed, standing in God's breast, by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, mark this, this is our word, equipped for every good work. How is the man or woman of God made equipped, made complete, made sufficient for something? What is it? The Word of God. The Word of God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training, and that's the equipment you need for every good work. But Luke 6.40, a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been, mark this, this is our word, fully trained will be like his teacher. That's our word. Who's the teacher here? Jesus. Who's the pupil? Every single disciple who's ever followed him. How are they equipped or fully qualified for ministry training? Word of God, right? It's Christ's word. Jesus is the teacher. And when you're fully trained, you're going to be like your teacher. And you're only going to be like your teacher if you understand what he said and start putting it to work. How about another illustration from Ephesians 4.11? And this is just such an important word and such an important prayer for the church. Verse 11 says, And he gave some apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Verse 12, for the, and mark this, this is our word. What's the word? Equipping. That's our word. Of the saints for the work of service. Paul was praying for completeness. That's that word equipping. He was praying for their equipping for works of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So here's the question. If the saints are fully equipped... What will they be doing? Works of service, building up the body of Christ. How are they equipped? Well, that was the first part of the verse. As we understand, pastors and teachers, they teach the Word of God, and that equips saints for works of service and the building up of the body of Christ. And so that's what they're doing as they respond to the Word of God that's taught. The last illustration, and I've kept it for last because this really captures the context plus the essence of the Word, and it's found in... Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it's, it's a passage we've looked at numerous times as part of the uh, one another's of the church, something you can't do if you're not regularly attending church. Verse 1 says, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, mark this, this is our word, what's it say? Restore. That's the essence of completeness too. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Restore a fallen believer in the spirit of gentleness. That's exactly what Paul has been doing in the spirit of weakness and gentleness. Has it not? And in, and in the sense of the other illustrations, then paired with this actual situation here in the church, people are walking in sin in Corinth. So much so that Paul says, test yourself and see if you're in the faith. And if you missed that series of messages 
from this section, you might want to look at that. It's very important. It's easy to just gloss over, test yourself, see if you're in the faith, say, okay, I'm in the faith. But again, it's not subjective, and the tendency in our culture is to define your own faith and your own morality and your own spirituality, which is not what the Scripture is talking about. And so we saw a number of, of, uh, of uh, passages that give us clearly the objective understanding of what it means to be in the faith. But Paul was so concerned that they were walking in sin for such a long period of time, he says, maybe you're not even in the faith. So Paul prays for the church, just like we saw from our previous example, where he prayed they would do no wrong. Here, he prays that they'll be fully equipped, adequate, sufficient for every good work and market, uh, which is, is the word for them, restored. Restored. Restoration in the Corinthian church. In that context, being renovated in every necessary way and thereby in a position to serve the Lord. And the word is used of James and John and their father Zebedee in Mark 4.21. You might find this very interesting. In Mark 4.21, Jesus is moving along, and he's calling his disciples, and he's going from there, and he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. Mark this, our word. What were they doing? Mending their nets. Mending is our word. Pray that you'll be complete. It can mean restored, it can be mended, it can be equipped, furnished. And they all really work together, don't they? If you think about how it's used in industry in the first century, as a ship comes from a long journey, they'll not only be re-equipping, there has to be some mending going on, right? They were in the heavy seas, things got broken, things were torn. And so, mending their net, that's the same word. And so Paul prays that the church will be, and I think it's very appropriate, mended. They'll be complete. And in the very sense of that word, they can, he can be equipped for every good work. And certainly Paul's teaching had equipped them for that. And they could be equipped the saints for works of service and fully trained to be like their teacher. But here, very specifically, I think, as we think about the church in Corinth, it's mending and restoration are the things that are most needed. And so he prays the church will be mended. And the church needs that sometimes, doesn't it? The church needs mended relationships and mended faithfulness and mended families, and mended testimonies, and the holes in that testimony repaired. And how much it grieved Paul, and how it grieves the faithful minister. Mark it to see the ragged ends of the net that's supposed to be fishing for men with huge holes in it because we haven't mended it. Haven't taken care of what needs to be taken care of in the personal life. And so the church corporately then has a problem carrying out its, its uh, mandate from the Lord. And when repaired, James and John's nets would have been serviceable. And when repaired, the church becomes serviceable. See, Restored to a condition where the Lord can use it. Now look at verse 10. 2 Corinthians 13.10. So Paul says this. For this reason, I am writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Let's look at that first part. He says, for this reason, I'm writing these things while absent. And of course, it's, it's the mending, it's the equipping, it's the restoration that he's writing it. And these things, of course, stand for the complete body of 2 Corinthians from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 13, verse 14. It can't mean anything else. This would be in line, I think, with chapter 12, verse 19, where he insists that all things... All things in the letter, its totality, are intended to build up the church. Remember in chapter 10, verse 1, the apostle picked, 
picked up accusations leveled against him by some, acknowledging that there is a sense in which he is bold when absent and humble when present. And, uh, and whatever some are thinking, uh, you know, he, maybe he's just thinking he's cowardly and, and it might, when he comes to the church, he, he, uh, you know, he might just explode on everybody or, it's, or it's, it's not really humility, it's fear. And they've got all these kind of con, you know, confused ways about their thinking of Paul. The explanation for his reserve and the straightforwardness of his letters is that he's waiting for the church to mend its nets and be restored. And the whole letter was about that. And he wasn't, he wasn't cowardly, and he, was, he didn't have some, some uh, passive-aggressive nature where he's, you know, he acts like he's not mad, but he really is. It's just about restoration. And he writes the whole letter as if he pulls everybody to the side and says, listen, I'm going to come. And when I come, there's some things that need to be repaired. And they haven't been repaired, and they've been this way a long time. And I'd rather not see them unrepaired when I come. Start mending. See? He wants to see the church dealing with sin in their life. He wants them to understand the need for discipline and authority. He wants them to be genuine and authentic. He wants them to be obedient. He wants them to develop some real integrity. And he wants to see them mature with the marks of a healthy church that's visible amongst them. See, I had a long talk with a, a gentleman this week as I was buying some, uh, some supplies for the house. And, uh, and he said, hey, I, re- I recognize your, your voice sounds familiar to me. Have you ever been on the radio? I said, yes, we were on the radio for a long time. He goes, I knew that. You sound like, I said, where do you worship? He goes, uh, well, I don't go to a church. I'm like, um, it's kind of hard to do the one another's if you're not in a church. He goes, well, I'm surrounded by believers. I said, well, that's great. I'm glad the Lord has given you a number of believers around you, but you don't get to redefine the church just because that's what you like. He goes, well, it's kind of my generation. I go, well, no, well, actually, Berean's full of people your, your age. I said, no, it's, it's people who decide that they want autonomy, they don't want any kind of authority in their life, they want to kind of be in charge of their own thing, define their own spirituality, all that kind of stuff. Those are the kinds of folks that just kind of move over. He goes, what about a house church? I said, there's nothing wrong with a house church. I said, but if it's set up right, then it's going to be just like a regular church. And there'll be an elder that's teaching, and there'll be some authority and some accountability. See, But people run from that because they want to define Christianity in their own terms. He goes, huh, I never thought of that. You asked this is it, see. It's about what the church is supposed to look like. It's, it's not subjective. And you remember, maybe remember from years ago, if you've been here a while, we went verse by verse through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. It was just a quick five-year study. Remember that? But when we came to chapter 12, and, and um, that was really the turning point. We came through, and I'm not going to go through it all for you right now. We don't have time. But uh, we had looked at how justification occurs. And, and the first 11 chapters of Romans basically tells you how justification occurs and what's going on in God's mind and how uh, it's explained to us very clearly and what faith looks like and all that kind of stuff. And then you get to the end of chapter 11, you get to chapter 12, and then there's this turning point, and now it's what does justification look like? What does it do? And I think that's important for us, and I'm, I want you to turn there. We're just going to read it. I just want let, to let it fall on your ears. Okay? It's not subjective. Salvation isn't just what you think you should be doing or maybe what you shouldn't be doing. It's not, you don't get to, find, you don't get to define that. And so Paul understands the nature of humans, and that's what we want to do. We just want to define our own, we think we're mature because we're doing such and such. But here's where he says, listen, if the Holy Spirit's active in your life and you're, you're, you're born again, then it's going to look like this. And I just want to read this, and we're going to close with this. But I just want to read this, and you just let it fall on your ears. And what I told you when we looked at this passage inside its context of, of the letter to Rome, is that in just inside, you can just have a card and just start marking, just privately, 
Do you see these things that work in your life? And if you're born again, many of these will be a yes. And you'll find some absences there, and then those are the things where you say, hey, I need to get busy. You know, this is what the Lord says to us that justification looks like. It's how it acts. And if you don't see any of them, then, of course, the, the, uh, the understanding would be it's unlikely that you were truly born again because this is what justification looks like. So Paul says this, Therefore, so in light of everything we know about being justified, it's going to look like something. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So just give yourself to whatever the Lord wants you to do inside this faith that now belongs to you. And don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be stamped in the world's image. Don't, don't copy the world in all these things, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How's your mind renewed? And we looked at this at length, but we, you certainly can see it by what we've studied today. It's the teaching of the Word of God, is it not? The study and the meditation of the Word of God is where you begin to make changes in your lifestyle. And it's what I tell people all the time. I'm having trouble with the scenario in my life. This is a difficult time my wife and I are having. Okay, let's look at the passages that have uh, addressed those things. Let's begin to replace faulty thoughts and faulty responses with ones that we're supposed to have. That's how sanctification occurs. So very clear. So that you may prove what the will of God is. You're going to understand what God wants for you. We say this all the time when we encourage you to be in the Word each day. Um, God has one will, and you'll be able to understand what that is. And when you're doing his revealed will from the word of God, which is do these things, pray without ceasing, and everything, give thanks, all those kinds of things, but this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you, you can be pretty sure that's what God wants you to do. People always say, what does God want me to do? Well, let's start there with the revealed will. And then the unrevealed will, which is, you know, should I buy this house, and should I move to this town, and what job should I have, all those kinds of things, will begin to be clear to you as your mind is renewed as you study the word of God. So this is what being uh, born again looks like. Verse 3, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. So that's the first thing that comes under the gun, isn't it? Our own haughty self-appreciation that we're the greatest we've ever seen and all that kind of stuff, okay? This is how we grew up. You know, everybody's the winner. Everybody's, uh, everybody's uh, gets a trophy and all that stuff. You know, everybody's good, all that stuff. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So you're going to understand how to look at yourself in relation to what the Word of God says about you. For Verse 4, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so you understand how your body works and it has hands and feet and all that kind of stuff, so we, so again, what's new? Okay, you're born again. Now you're part of this body in Christ and individually members of one another. So that's a whole new relationship. Now look at verse 6. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, so each of you received spiritual gifts when you came to faith. We've talked about all of that. Exercise them accordingly. So you've been given an ability to serve the church. Use it. If prophecy, according to the proportion of faith, if service, for seven, in serving, in teaching, in his teaching, verse 8, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, or he who gives with liberality, or he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. See, and that's not an exhaustive list. It's just you may have some of those spiritual gifts. Start doing it. And all of us are required to, to worship the Lord in this way and to serve and to teach and to, and to encourage and to give of what we have. That's part of our worship. And then he says this, let love be without hypocrisy. So love each other, what's the other side? Sincerely. Abhor what's evil and cling to what's good. That's a mind change, isn't it? Turn away from wicked things. And you, now you can because you've been justified. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Your relationship now with those in the church is like a family. 
And I always joke about this, no matter what goes on in the back seat, when you get to your destination, you're still brothers and sisters. And that's how it's supposed to work. And you love each other, and you make up, and you, and you fix stuff. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging, verse 11, behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. When you're serving the Lord, as you use your spiritual gifts, dig in, own the ministry, get, get involved, give yourself. Verse 12, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted in prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, give when you see there's a need, practicing hospitality, bring people who you don't know into your home, that's what that means. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you and don't curse. Rejoice with those, verse 15, who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Don't be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation, verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what's right in the sight of all men. It matters what people think of you. I, I, I see that, hear this all the time from people. When I say, hey, you probably shouldn't be doing that because you know, people are going to look at that and say, hey, you know, are they truly a believer? I don't care what people think about me. Listen. As a believer, you don't have that option anymore. Did you know that? Respect what's right in sight of all men. Your testimony is important, and what people think about you is also important. And that's not the only place the Scripture says this. If possible, verse 17, so far as it depends, 18 rather, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. As much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. It takes a lot of the agitation out of your day, doesn't it? Especially when you're driving to work. Everybody's supposed to be in the right lane, but a lot of people are in the left lane, and they're getting all the way up to the front, and they're cutting off. Be at peace with all men. That's new, isn't it? Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you're burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome with evil. Overcome evil with good. That's what justification does. Paul says, I want the church restored. I want it to see it equipped. I want to see it doing what it's supposed to do. Mended. It starts doing these things. See? It's not subjective. This is what it's supposed to look like. Do you see those things in your life? Were you able to check off a lot of those? Yes, I see that. Not as much as I'd like, but I do see that working. See, then you, you truly are born again. And You've been minted and restored and equipped for every good work. Start doing it. For the Corinthian church, this is what it would look like to be mended, to be restored. So he says, for this reason, I'm writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. So he's writing before he comes. He's having an aside. He doesn't want an uncomfortable business meeting, and he doesn't want to cloud over his visit, and he doesn't want to mourn and be brought low, and he certainly doesn't want to have to act severely with unrepentant offenders. And so he's given him a chance. And this is what he wants to do. And so we see that just the heart of Paul here, we have to close because we're out of time. But uh, we'll pick up here next time, Lord willing, and, uh, and close out our study with this and with Paul's closing, which is just so rich next week as we, as we uh, get the opportunity. All right? So let's pray if you would, and then we'll move on to the next part of our service. We've got a missions moment, which will be really fun for you, I think. Lord, thank you today for an opportunity to be together with... Uh, these other believers, so fun and such a joy to be together and in like mind, to desire the same things and to want to be restored, to be bended, to be equipped for every good work and, and, and be like our teacher, Jesus. It, it is the heartfelt desire, I think, of every believer who sits here today and everyone who listens to be like Jesus. We want to be like Jesus, and it's, it's not self-defined. 
So Lord, I pray that um, just these simple passages, which are just so rich for us, just can mold us into the image you'd have us be. Not stamped in the world's image, renewed in our mind. We might begin, in, uh, begin to understand your will for us and know more and more what you expect. It must be in your word each day so we understand what your will is. We understand the holy standard that's before us. We understand how to praise you and how to pray and all these things that are so important for us as we grow. It's our prayer today, Father. We're thankful for the opportunity to learn more and to, and to be in this passage that you've given us so much from. And I pray, Lord, as we close it out, that we'll do it justice. That you might um, bridge the gap from the speaker to the hearer that whatever I miss and, and don't do well, you might encourage your flock as they read it. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.